Welcome back to another episode of Control Alt Career, a podcast where we share stories of people who have taken a leap and embarked on an alternative career path in Asia. I'm your host, Jennifer Ong, and today I'm very, very excited to have Chris and Reina from Style Theory join us. Chris and Reina are the co-founders and married couple behind Style Theory, Southeast Asia's largest fashion subscription rental platform, where for a monthly fee, you can rent clothes and designer bags and get access to an unlimited closet. Style Theory was founded just four years ago and now has over 35,000 items of clothing and 2,000 designer bags available for their customers to rent. The company has since expanded beyond Singapore into Indonesia, and just this year expanded its services to Hong Kong. To support its growth, the company is venture-backed and just closed its Series B last year. Before starting Style Theory, Chris and Reina both cut their teeth in the corporate world. Chris started his career as a management consultant, first at Accenture and then at Bain & Company, and Reina worked at Goldman Sachs in the prime brokerage division. Thanks so much, Chris and Reina, for joining me today. So first question for you guys, how did you both transition away from your corporate job into starting your own company? Did you guys always think you were going to be an entrepreneur? For me, I come from a family of entrepreneurs, so it was very much expected as an Indonesian Chinese to be an entrepreneur as well. I moved out of Bain at 2015. That was the time where like Uber was really booming, Grab was booming as well. So I think at that time, it was very, very easy to see the potential and the excitement of the startup world and what can we lose if we actually like uh, make this switch. The worst that can happen is... No, I'll just go back to Bain, right? <laughs> I was also at a moment where, you know, it was a crossroads for myself where either, you know, if I wanted to stay in consulting, I'll go to MBA. And I thought, yeah, entrepreneurship is really the MBA of life. And the amount of money that I will spend into MBA, I mean, a small fraction of it will be my seed capital um, that I, I can actually use to, you know, learn a lot more. And I think fortunately, well, we did learn a lot more relevant than if I went to MBA. Um, so I I really enjoy being an employee. So I was, I, I was happy to be um, in a corporate role. I think what I knew from the beginning was that I wouldn't be in the finance industry for a long time. So Prior to being in the finance industry, I was actually working in an NGO in Kenya and I really enjoy my time there, being able to see the direct impact of my efforts on the ground. So I knew that um, going into a finance um, job was really for me to learn up skill sets such that I could transition eventually into an area where I can make more direct impact into the things that I'm passionate about. So for me, I think once I hit the five years mark in my corporate role, I started looking into what do I believe will be something that's more aligned with my own values. Um, is it sustainability? Is it about women empowerment? You know, is it about education? So I started looking out and I think the startup space was just um, really vibrant at that time. And I met a lot of founders and found their stories very inspiring. So I was like, oh, you know, I would love to work for some of them. And I started talking to them and actually interviewing at some of the roles there. Before I think Chris approached me and be like, oh, why don't we just build our own? So then I was like, oh, okay, maybe I'll give it a shot. Okay. <laughs> so, so originally you were thinking maybe you would um, get another job working for someone else. And then Chris, you were the one who had a bit more of like the entrepreneurial drive in you. Um, I guess, yeah. Chris, <laughs> how, how did you convince Reina to, to jump on board? Especially because back then you guys were already dating and, and now you guys are married. 
um, was there a part of you that was like, oh, you know, will the relationship be at risk if we start something together? Oh. Yeah, or yeah. was it I not mean... a concern? <laughs> so we are quite unique from that perspective because even before we thought of starting the business, um, we were already dating for close to 10 years. We, we went through college together. We know um, how to work well with each other. We've done projects together and we travel a lot together. So I think that... That perspective uh, helped us to understand, okay, can we work together or not? And I, I think our answer was yes. That, um, uh, I think for uh, Ray did not really take that much convincing because we are actually doing a business that solves her problem and uh, that really is like her dream in some sense. So I think that aspect was very easy. Definitely. Uh, yeah. <laughs> And our, our business idea of style theory is very, very impact-driven and it's something that resonates very well for both of us. Yeah, that's true, that's true. I think if you're building like some electronics gaming thing, I might not be as keen to like just come on board. <laughs> so, yeah. So, okay, that brings me then to the second question, which is how did you guys come up with this idea? Because I know, Chris, you explored a few different ideas prior to landing on mm. style theory. So I, I left uh, Bain in the uh, early part of 2015, I think. And then for a good like six months, I was working on something else at the time. I think it was like a groceries kind of business. I learned a lot of things from that six months where I learned how to build a tech team, hire people in Indonesia and in Singapore, product management. So that was very helpful when we eventually landed Style Theory. But when you asked me like, you know, how did we come up with the idea of Style Theory and what we learned um, from the first experience, I would say the most important one is we need to do something that we are passionate about. I think I, I learned that for myself. I need to do something that I believe and passionate about. I realized after six months that I'm not very passionate about groceries. Uh, the second thing that we learned is that we had to have customers before the product. That's the biggest learning that we ever had. Demand first, right? Demand first, then supply. I think I went the wrong path with uh, the groceries business where I, I, I focus on building an app, trying to get all the suppliers without actually getting the customers. Yeah, five months uh, into my previous venture, I realized that I wanted to explore something different and I wanted to bring someone on board in this uh, journey. And I thought, okay, Ray will be a great fit because she's thinking of leaving and she has that aspect of business that I do not have, which is especially her experience in operations. Yeah, yeah. we were just thinking, oh, you know, like what would be like uh, fun to build, like really solving a problem because at the end of the day, if we're going to jump out of my corporate role to do something, I want to make sure it's something that is really going to be impactful, right? I want to see my effort translate into direct impact. So that was personally something important for me. So when we were thinking about the different problems to be solved, and then Chris just noticed how I'm always complaining about not having enough clothes. Um, and, and I love shopping. So I have so many clothes, so many shoes, so many bags. Uh, and Chris was just like, how can you say you have nothing to wear when you have like all these wardrobe full of clothes? Like what are all this money wasted? So I think that really prompted us to like kind of develop the idea further. Be like, oh, is it just me? Or is there like a lot of other women that is just like as crazy about fashion as I am? And I think we spoke to like over 30 women, um, our close friends, our relatives and stuff. And we realized that all of them have face this like a morning problem of oh i have nothing to wear and that's when we're like okay wait can we be that solution to solve that yeah one thing we will learn very quickly is that a majority of women's clothes are worn maximum two to three times in their entire lifetime somewhere around 80 percent of women's clothes are worn maximum three times 
that's absolutely insane, right? And for that's us, so true. Yeah, but very, very true. <laughs> I mean, for for me, I could never understand it. But after speaking to all these women, I know that this was a real problem. So, yeah, we thought to ourselves: if most of these clothes are worn maximum three times anyway, why do they have to own it? Why not just access the clothes? And this really resonated very, very well with our craving of making an impact. I completely agree. I think that's one of the reasons why I decided to join Style Theory as well, because I really do think that this is one of those huge problems that we need to solve. Um, and there's yeah. no one really in Southeast Asia who's really doing this. So I think kudos mm. to you guys for for starting this and and really pushing it forward. So I guess this leads me to my question about how you guys validated the idea and coming up with this business model, given that this idea is relatively new in Southeast Asia, like no one else really is talking about renting clothes, let alone like signing up for a monthly subscription to to rent clothes. Um, so we actually don't really know what, what to do at the beginning because we didn't even have like emails or or anyone's contact to really say, hey, do you want to do this? Except for like people within our close circle. And I think the thing with people within your close circle is that um, sometimes they might be too polite to tell you that it's a bad idea. So we always knew that and we just wanted to really get a public sense of um, whether this idea will work or not. Um, so what we did was we first set up an Instagram account and um, our first goal was to say, hey, you know, could we get 500 emails? Because we needed that to really even validate anything further. So um, I think Chris did up this landing page in 24 hours using one of the websites, Building 2. And then I set up an Instagram account and we put like $10 a day on Instagram to just kind of sell the idea a little bit to be like, hey, you know, women, do you guys want to have this like infinite cloud wardrobe where you can access anything and just see how many people would put up their hand and say, hey, you know, I'm keen, sign me up for it. So um, we ran that for around a month and we got 1,500 email address instead of just the 500 that we wanted at the beginning. So that to us was like, oh, wow, you know, like women has a real problem here they, and they are looking for a solution. So that was um, really at the beginning where we knew that people have like this keen interest to find a solution for this problem. And um, it's really up to us on how are we going to figure out um, how to really execute this? You know, how would this cloud wardrobe look like? Um, how would the subscription plan look like? So once you guys had this 1,500 email addresses, what was the next step for you guys? <laughs> oh, so the next step for us is what kind of clothes do we buy for this 1,500 women? Because at the very beginning, uh, it was just myself, right? So I kind of like curate all the clothes that I like, but we wanted to do it in a very data-driven manner where we divide the different types of clothes into the categories, whether is it workwear or is it like a weekend casual or like a small event or big event kind of thing. So we divided the inventory that we're going to procure for um, into 25% in each category. So then for us, then we'll know which will be the one that we should go deeper into over time. So the next step for us after devising like the structure of experiment, we started talking to designers to see whether they'd be keen in um, partnering with a concept like that. So I think first was demand and then the second one is uh, figuring out supply, yeah, right? I think we had to re ensure that the supply was possible. And once we realized we are able to procure this clothing from designers, we also had to have money, right? So we put in a little bit of our money and we raised a little bit of Angel's money from people that we know. And then I think we had enough clothes just for 100 and I think 150 subscribers. And 
I'll say when we were closer to launch, we actually got a space, like a small temporary space for basically for operations. We onboarded a team of interns and a team of um, part-time engineers uh, who are very, very important for us to get all the uh, back-end functioning system all ready. So all this were running in parallel. I think we it took around four months, three to four months to set it, mm. there, to set it up. And... And we uh, and after that, uh, when we were all ready, we actually started reaching out to that waiting list that we we previously uh, procured, and started onboarding them. That's pretty crazy that you guys did it in three to four months from like uh, idea conception all the way to actually being able to. Uh, send send clothes to the first batch of of customers. But before we go into that, um, how did you guys find these designers? At the very beginning, like, mm. did you have connections in the fashion space, or you had friends who could like point you in the right direction, or it was all like cold emailing? I think because I was such a shopaholic, I think I know the brands that I really love. So we started from there. Some of them, they were really quite receptive to talk to us because maybe I've been also spending quite a bit with them. So then I think started talking to them. They introduced us to more designers, and then from there we also do our own um, search online. Um, there was a lot of cold emailing as well. Usually, you start off with talking to someone from the um, customer service team, and really, it's understanding what you need to say to make sure that you can get attention from like the person who can really make the decision. I, I think also our past company, Goldman and Bain, both have really good sort of brand name. I think we also try to leverage that when we put it in the cold email. Yeah. So I think that definitely helped people to at least give that email a read to see like what are these two crazy people trying to do. We didn't know enough about the fashion industry though. So that was the part that we really had to learn about. We had to learn the lingo. We had to learn who to speak to. We had to learn the right kind of deal structure, what kind of timelines that work, all those kind of things. So, so once you guys got the designers on board and you know you had a good list of customers you could reach out to, you decided that it was time to hire a team. How did you go about this hiring process? The first way to do this for me was I looked into LinkedIn to figure out who are the right kind of profiles that I want. For example, the tech lead in that company. And I started moving from there, you know, trying to get a meeting, trying to get a call, trying then after the call, uh, if that person is not interested, um, trying to get a referral, right? I had to sell consistently. But... The key thing is to be able to get at least one core engineer who believes in you, who will sell your idea to his friends uh, or her friends, right? Uh, who will be able to get more team members to join you. Yeah. And I think starting it off in a part-time basis is a lot less like high intimidating, uh, intimidating I would say. Yeah. 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 Like uh, easier for them to commit and then easier for them to test it out that, to see whether it's great to work with us. And I think our our yeah, our initial team really wanted to make a difference as well. They were quite sick of their uh, more corporate roles per se as engineers. And they also wanted to do something a bit different. We didn't have a CTO when we started, uh, but we had a very good solid uh, team of four part-time engineers who ended up becoming our full-time employees too. So you guys decided pretty early on you needed to fundraise. Was it because you needed the capital to buy all the clothes to support the customers? Yes. So very early on in our research, we understood that we need to have inventory to start with and the inventory have to be bought. So uh, for us, then you need to have capital. So that's why we needed to raise VC money. How did you learn how to fundraise or like, oh. like how did you know like 
what like what do investors care about how much money to ask from them how much equity to give yeah. them etc a lot of reading i'll okay. say so i think we are quite fortunate to live in a world where there's a you know a lot of online forums quora books and a lot of articles yc articles and all those kind of things so <clears throat> i did use that as a basis to of un- of understanding how the whole venture capital fundraising work fundraising thing work at the same time, however, like, for example, like, you know, the YC knowledge, were, especially from a fundraising side, can sometimes be a little bit US-centric and less Southeast Asia-centric. So the next step after understanding a basic point of view from all these different articles and forums online is to have a mentor. Uh, we very early on, I think, met some some entrepreneurs who were already in this in this path, and we basically asked them the frank truth about how did they fundraise, uh, what kind of dilution you should expect, uh, what kind of money uh, you should be able to raise, and so on, right? And I think that's super important to ground all this, like you know, ideas uh, that you have to what the local context is. The final thing is for us as well. We needed to really, like, when we are raising money, it's very important to do a bit of a reference check as well to who you're raising money from, right? When you raise from, like, the right investors, they are not going to, quote-unquote, like, cheat you with the valuation and dilution and stuff like this. The right investors want to invest for the future. The right investors have already started thinking like, okay, you'll need at least, like, three to five rounds of funding. Thus, you shouldn't dilute too much at the beginning. So... You need to make sure that the, the first dilution is not too much because it's going to lead to a bad kind of uh, record. You, uh, and, or you shouldn't have this kind of clause at the beginning because it's going to get bad later on, right? So I think the right kind of investors do know the, the kind of things that you should have inside your term sheet. You know, and you're um, looking to be partners with you more than like just like trying to kind of like take advantage of like an early stage startup yeah. I, think, I think you kind of can get a sense of that when you meet the investors in person uh, when you talk to them I think it's also very important for to not see venture capitalists as just like you know people that you're going to get money from I think a lot of times they can give really good advice even for people who don't give you money so I think it's always very good to talk to a lot of VC you know validate your ideas no one really wants to steal an idea because actually the implementation part is the hardest so I think really just put your ideas out there, you know, talk to them. Um, They'll give you a lot of um, different viewpoints. Some VC might have completely like opposite viewpoints. And I think those are times where you really, you'll find a lot of learnings and figure out for yourself how and which kind of VC you want to get money from because that's the also the similar direction that you want to build towards. And do you guys feel like because you got venture money that there's a lot more expectation to grow in a certain way? Because I know you have in the past couple of years expanded not just from apparel rental, but to designer bag rental, and then also across geographical regions to Indonesia and now recently to Hong Kong. Do you feel like a lot of this was because of um, pressure from, from VCs to grow a certain way? Let's put it this way. When you are a venture-funded company, your traction and path has to be different um, because you raised money, right? So the kind of companies that you're compared against is quite different as well from a traditional business. So there are some expectations of how many times you must grow in a year, in the next two years. Because if you're in a point of view of a VC, they care about how much of a um, return can they get. 
based on how big you can be and how fast can you get there. So that is why there is a pressure to grow when you raise venture money. So yeah, answering your second question of like, you know, expanding new categories, expanding to new countries. I think for us, uh, all these things were part into our projection of how we plan to expand in the next couple of years, which we become the basis of why do you need this money? What kind of growth are you expecting from this venture money? Yeah. But I will have to say, though, that the the funding landscape has also changed quite a bit in today's world, where four or five years ago, it was a lot more about growing your revenues, right? But I think in the past one year, it is a lot more about how do you get towards profitability? Are you on track, right? Um, because I think there's a lot more cautionary tales of growing your revenues with never ever path towards profitability. Uh, nowadays, investors are always trying to understand how are you going to uh, eventually be a profitable uh, public company or a profitable company that can be sold. Do you guys ever think about what life would have been like if you didn't fundraise? Do you think the company um, would have been at the same level or, you know, it would be a very different type of company if you didn't have VCs backing you? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think for anyone who's thinking of starting a company, I think that's always like, oh, do I get VC money? And I think that's a very important question that you need to ask for yourself. We decided to go with the VC route because we wanted to really bring this vision across this region in a very short amount of time to really figure out how would this mold out to become the future of fashion. And at that time, that was um, something that was important for us. So I think when we spoke with VCs, they were able to partner with us to really expand this vision very quickly in this region, which was why we decided to um, go with that with money and fast growth kind of path. But do have a lot of friends who are actually running businesses without VC funding and they're growing just as fine. But it's just that with VC money, you tend to like expedite the growth. So like what a company could have done in 10 years, you will do it in maybe three. <clears throat> and and I think that's why um, in a VC funded startup environment, it will be a lot more stressful. Also because you're per- you are also personally growing at very high speed. You know, what growth you are, that you usually experience in three years, you will be probably doing that in six months to a year. One thing to highlight as well is that there are some ideas that will require VC funding more than others. So for example, if you are doing a business that is more competitive, right? And if your competitors have raised venture funding and you want to be number one, then it is important that you also raise venture funding because that is a competitive land grab kind of space. Shifting gears a little bit, what would you say was the most surprising thing that you guys learned from this uh, entire journey as an entrepreneur? I think one of the things that we really realized is the leader of a 10-man startup is very different than a leader of a 50-man startup and then a leader of a 200-man startup, right? But at the same time, we made that jump from 10 to like 200, I think within like like two years-ish. Like we realized, oh, wow, very quickly, we had to be a very different people and we had to really like upskill uh, yourself as a leader, you know, quite surprising yeah. as well. I think it's building on that part when you are running a startup that is increasing in um, size in terms of the number of people then you start to realize that um, sometimes you do need to create certain level of process you know scope of work you need to think a little bit about everyone's personal desire so maybe some people want to grow within two years some people are more focused on um 
maybe the environmental aspect and that's why they join you. So everyone joins you for a slightly different reason. And knowing that and knowing what motivates people, um, it's actually something that I think at the beginning, we didn't really invest a lot of time. So it sounds to me like one of the biggest surprises or the biggest challenges was really more around like the people management side and trying to motivate people or compensate people in the way that they would like to be because everyone is so so different. And I guess kind of leading to the next question, which is how did you guys figure all of this out? You know, like this people management stuff, this operation stuff, uh, logistics, etc. There's so many facets of this business that is really quite new and very, I guess it, it requires a very almost technical type of skill set. How did you guys get up to speed and, and learn all of that? Was it really mostly just uh, baptism by fire or was it hiring the right people? <laughs> How did you guys yeah. do that? Yeah, there's no way that I can have expertise in logistics, operations, marketing, merchandising, you know, within a short period of time. It's just not possible. So usually a lot of time we invest in is really to figure out how to hire that right person. And then from there, we'll, uh, we'll just kind of give the autonomy to the person to run, set some success metrics and then um, take it from there. Yeah. So I think that's what really worked out for us so far. And I think with that, we have built up a really good bench of sort of heads and uh, leaders in the company who's able to take the company in ways that we probably wouldn't have been able to. Yeah. As a startup founder, there is a very high temptation, at least for me, to want to do things yourself. Uh, and... It is very important to fight that temptation because there is no way that a startup founder can do everything themselves. And even if you can, you shouldn't because then you will never be able to be... This, this business will not be truly sustainable. So that's what we uh, you know, really invest mm-hmm. the time in, like making sure you hire the right people. Uh, what kind of people that we had to hire? I think a lot of that came from uh, advice from mentors too. A lot of readings as well. I think there's a lot of good readings online to help you understand, you know, what's the right product manager that you need? What's the right head of marketing that you need? So I think those are some of the resources that we have leveraged. And then I think talking to experts in the field, right? So we also talk to people who is the head of marketing for another startup. And then be like, oh, you know, I'm doing this. You know, what kind of head of marketing do you think I should look for? And because they are specialized in that field, they'll be able to tell you, oh, you actually need someone that's more content driven. You need someone that's more branding driven. So then that's when you start to shape out your own view of like the kind of person that you will need. Yeah. Shifting gears a little bit, how did you get decide what kind of salary to take as founders? Yeah, I think it's very tempting for the founders to just not pay themselves at the beginning. I think all, all founders go through that stage of like, oh, I think it's fine. I don't, I don't need a salary. Let me just see if this works. But I think at some point, the founders do need to think about paying themselves because otherwise it's just not sustainable. Um, I think we went through that phase also of not paying ourselves and then eventually talking to investors. And I think them helping us to gather like the benchmark of how much a startup founder at different stage of a startup should be paid at to just make sure that they stay sustainable sustainable themselves. I think I can give some benchmark. I think when we first started, it was zero. And then I think for a year, it was like $1,000 a month because you know you need at least to buy yourself food and transport to get to work. So I think that was kind of like where the benchmark was. So obviously very, very far cry from anything that you are earning corporate today. But I also understanding that that would be temporary. So once you uh, reach your next round, then that's when it depends on the size of the startup that you're handling and stuff, then you can compensate yourself differently. 
So for people who are maybe also currently thinking about leaving their corporate job for the startup world, would you say that they need to have a certain amount of money saved up so that they can not take a a salary for a couple of months or a low salary, let's say? Or do you feel like actually you don't need to have X amount saved up in your bank before you pursue this startup route? So I I don't think we were as intentional, but now looking back, you, you need to make sure that of course you don't starve, right? This is super, super important because a startup is a long-term game. There is no way that you're going to get exit out in like five years. Because of that, you have to first understand, okay, can I sustain my lifestyle with this kind of, with the startup earnings that is minimal or if I earn anything at all? If not, are you okay to lower your lifestyle level? Then on top of that, of course, like what you mentioned, yes, I think it's important to have some buffer in your income. You should not be expecting to have a lot of income from a startup, especially if it's, you know, if it's more of a unprofitable startup at the beginning, you know, a VC back one that is focusing on growth, let's say, for example, then you should not be expecting a lot of returns at the beginning. But at the same time, if you have a really good idea and you have good traction and your personal circumstances does not allow you to have a low salary, I think speak to your investors, uh, speak to your mentors. Um, a lot of startup founders actually, they start up as a side hustle at the beginning. And then when it's starting to show traction, they, they jump off after they see they raise a little bit of money and stuff like this. And that's something that they can align with their investors. However, the guideline is generally you won't be able to thrive and you know maintain a fantastic lifestyle when you are doing a startup. It's more of, you know, you'll be able to survive. Your survival shouldn't be your motivating factor that is on your mind consistently when you run the startup. Yeah. You spoke a bit about mentors uh, quite a few times throughout this interview. How did you guys go about finding these mentors? Mm. For us, we found entrepreneurs who are in a relevant field, someone who we admired, and then we just ask them out for coffee chat, get them on WhatsApp, you know, get on calls with them. I think that's what we try to do as much as possible. I think a lot of people also formalize this approach, for example, getting them in as advisors by giving them a small percentage of equity. Um, that also can be a strategy that you can have because at the beginning, your equity is uh, basically not valued very much, right? This mentor should be able to generate a lot a lot of more value than what kind of uh, percentage that you give them. Yeah, I think you can also go for a lot of networking event because I think for myself, um, I did went for some networking event as a panel speaker or as someone who's in the audience. And I think through that, you get to know people and then I exchange tips and tricks along the way with each other. You know how in the Western world, people say, follow your passion, follow your dreams and the money will come. Whereas in Asia, people tend to value financial stability a lot more than following your dreams. I know that both mm-hmm. of you have decided to follow your passion and to do uh, something that leaves an impact in this world. I guess would love to hear your thoughts on on this statement. Mm. This is an interesting question because when I was younger, I was definitely more on that camp of, oh, I wanted to be rich, I wanted to be successful, I want to have all these like material things. That was you know early 20s, right? But as I, I was starting to mature during my corporate days, I started to realize that the, the thing that mattered most to me is to actually make an impact. And I think this came a little bit from the introspection that I had in my, you know, in my corporate roles where I felt that I was not very happy. It wasn't, a, 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 about, it wasn't about the hours. It was, I mean, the startup hours are even worse than my consulting hours, right? And definitely wasn't about the money uh, and not about the prospective 
career progression either. But I, I wasn't happy because I, I was lacking the meaning. So uh, for me, that meaning became the key thing that I, I, that I always need to strive for. So uh, once I knew that that was important for me, I think the decision making to build a startup that was impactful was very easy. Yeah. So I think for anyone who's listening, I think understanding uh, you are, what you want to achieve in life, and that can be totally different from what you initially thought it can be because we are maturing as individuals. So I think whether pursuing dreams will, will get you money, I think, I think what Chris is trying to say is that you know whether it gives you money or not, it it would matter because pursuing the dream has already given you so much learning, and I think yeah. those are so much more value. But I think going back to the original statement of whether, you know, like pursuing your dream will, will get you money, I think it's really hard to tell, right? So I think in that journey, it's so important for yourself to really make sure that you are getting what you need and that money, whether it comes or not, will become like the good bonus on top. Yeah. Um, so I think that's kind of like how both of us are kind of approaching how we are going to build this startup and, you know, why we are going to still continue to slog it out in this startup journey. Um, but I do believe that, you know, if you put in enough effort um, and and focus into uh, a certain area, it will definitely reap rewards. But is, if that's the reward that you're looking for, you know, if it's a Lamborghini or is it like a high-end condominium, I think that's just so hard to tell, especially in this changing dynamic. Just one final question before we close out. Any final pieces of advice for listeners who are thinking about pursuing this path? Maybe things that you guys wish you had known before embarking on this journey? So I'm someone who looks for a more holistic life. So I can't just like work every day, seven days a week. But in the first two years, it was literally like that. And I think in that process, I sometimes feel like I lost myself a little bit. Like, oh, you know, I'm not attending a good friend's birthday party or like someone's baby shower. And, and that impacted me slowly. So I think for... I think if I have to look back, I think it could have been better planned. So also know what matters to you, right? I think just running full speed into a startup might not be the best way and you could have actually managed it better. I could have. So I think what I would have done instead would be to structure out, you know, like what are the things that I like, I can't miss, you know, and it is going to eat away at me. And marking those down as like mandatory that I need to go no matter what's going to happen within the startup space. I think that will help you to find that balance of like not losing yourself when you are so focused in building something. Yeah. yeah. If you are not sure whether you want to be an entrepreneur but you're very intrigued with the startup world try to join a smaller stage startup that you believe in first um, that's something that we did not do and I think we actually could learn a lot more in our entrepreneurship journey if we actually join a smaller stage startup to learn from where you have good access to the founders where you know you'll be able to like understand how their decision making and work with them and understand the true rigor of an early stage startup to know whether you want it or not right I think these are really, really good pieces of advice and um, a great way for us to close out the show today. So just wanted to give you guys a big thank you for being part of the show and for sharing your thoughts. And there you have it, my conversation with the founders of Style Theory. Here's a couple key takeaways that I got from this conversation. One, start with demand, not supply. What Chris learned from his first grocery business was that you can spend months building out a product but it could fall flat if there's no demand for it. A good way to test demand is to create a waitlist by building out a landing page and putting some money behind Facebook ads. Two, LinkedIn is your best friend when it comes to hiring. 
Start by cold emailing the profiles you're interested in. Get on a call with them, and if they're not interested, ask for referrals. Three, join an early stage startup if you're interested in starting your own business but not quite sure if you want to commit just yet. This could be a great way for you to test out whether the startup life is for you without jumping into the deep end of the pool. On a side note, this is actually what I did. I was thinking about starting my own business, but because I was looking to move from Hong Kong to Singapore for my relationship, I thought, why not join a startup to see if I'm cut out for this and get to know the startup scene in Singapore? So far, it's been a great way for me to learn about the industry, the jargon, what metrics I need to pay attention to, and how to grow and scale a business. Four, the worst that can happen if you try out an alternative career and it completely fails, you go back to a corporate job. The risk to trying out an alternative career actually isn't as high as you might think. And that's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Control Alt Career. Check back in two weeks from now for our next episode, where I'll be interviewing the founder of Asia Wedding Network, and hear how Michelle went from an equity research analyst at J.P. Morgan to starting Asia's largest online wedding platform, a one-stop shop for couples planning their big day. Until then. 